wish I could bring a tr- truck to worship. That would be uh, that would enrich my worship a lot. So, um, but it might make some of you jealous if I play with my truck. So uh, we've been looking at Second Corinthians and. Uh, uh, we're up to Second Corinthians chapter one verses twenty-three through chapter two verse eleven, and um, let me say a couple of things right at the outset. Last week, what we looked at was Paul's dealing with a problem in the church because people are gossiping about him and are embittered about him because he had made a promise to come to see them and he didn't keep the promise, and he used that uh, as an occasion last week rather than to defend himself, uh, but to uh, rather preach the gospel to the church at Corinth. Today, he's going to continue that, and he's going to say why he uh, ultimately made the choice not to come, why he made the choice uh, to disappoint them. And so let me say at the outset, this is a very confusing passage, really confusing. It's really hard to understand. Uh, And... um, uh, but the things that are clear in it are clear. Okay? Uh, and so we're going to pay the majority of our attention to that. If you're a, a scholar of the Corinthian uh, correspondence, uh, you may take issue at one point in the sermon about what I'm going to identify. Uh, but if you want to have an argument about that, we can have an argument about it this week because I studied it and I'm right. So... Uh, uh, which, as we get into the text this morning, you'll see, uh, is a pretty hilarious thing to say. So, Second uh, Corinthians chapter one, uh, verses twenty-three through chapter uh, two, verse eleven. So, uh, after I read the text, we're going to do a quick review. Uh, I'm going to read you a, a, another letter. Uh, then we're going to look at a, an extended text where Paul mentions the letter that he wrote in this text, and then we're going to draw some conclusions. 2 Corinthians 1, 23 through 2, 11, this is the word of God, and we should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I've pained? As I, and I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now, if anyone has caused pain, do you see that he repeats that word a lot? Causing pain, right? If anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has for your sake in the presence of, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Um, so, um, yeah, this is quite, a, quite an interesting passage, isn't it? So as, as we look at this, uh, today, um, 
There's a, a couple of things we need to note. So, Scott, go ahead and put my notes up there. So Paul explains here in this section uh, why he had said he would visit the Corinthian church and why he had not. He explains here that because of the rift between him and the people in the church, and remember what happened was he said he was going to come, uh, and people, uh, and then he was, un- he, he uh, didn't come, and then that caused an even further uh, issue. Now, Paul has a rancorous and a difficult relationship with this church. He loves the church at Corinth, and the church at Corinth is his most difficult church. And and I would say, uh, based on what I know about the church of Corinth and what we've we've read and what the information that we have, it's the most like ours. So as we look at this, uh, one one of the things that he would say is uh, he's struggling with his relationship with this church. Uh, that he planted. And so he knows that if he comes to see them in the midst of an unreconciled and rancorous situation, it's going to be very painful. It's going to be very difficult. And he says right here, the reason why I didn't come, it was to spare you that I refrain from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy so that you stand firm in faith. Right. So the the thing that is uh, uh, pretty profound about that is is that what he's doing here in planting this church, what he's done here in his ministry to this church, all of these things that he's poured out for them, he says, is for their joy. See, in verse 24, he says this, right? He says, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. So this conflict that he's engaged in and this difficulty that he's addressed, the point of that is not so that his reputation would be restored or that people would look up to him, but so that the church and he would have full joy. And he also wants to do this to let them know, as he says in verse 4, the abundant joy, right? For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant Love that I have for you. So what he's done here is he's caused them pain. He's written difficult things. He's rebuked them, right? He's he's done some 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 uh, said some harsh uh, and hard things for them to them that they needed to hear uh, to address the sin that was going on within the church. And and he he mentions over and over again that it causes pain, right? Now. This is this is something that's difficult for us. It's a very ticklish thing for us to get at, because for, for the most part, it is hard for us to understand how someone can cause me pain for my good. Or how you could cause someone else pain for their good. Um, when uh, when I had my uh, cataract surgery a couple of weeks ago, one of the glories of cataract surgery is that you're awake the whole time and. Uh, one of the ways that they uh, uh, deal with it is they stick a, um, <laughs> you're numb. So they stick a uh, ultrasound wand in your uh, eye and turn it on, and the pulses from the ultrasound break up the cataract. And so as the doctor's sticking that in my eye, he says, this might hurt a little bit. Because this thing is like beating in your eye. It's an ultrasound thing, right? And he was right. He did that because he loved me, right, uh, to break up the cataract, right? He had to, he had to cause me a, a, a little bit of pain, right? So, so it's a pretty profound thing that we see here, and it is something that, that he is so, so concerned and, and uh, uh, careful about, right? So um, it is, it's, it's really an interesting thing because 
as we look at this, we think most of the time we're quicker to cause pain because we've had pain. Or we're quicker to cause pain because we see it in someone else. Or even more so, the danger that you and I experience this morning is we look at this text and we see there's a conflict like we do in much of our life where we observe people that are in conflict with one another. And we say to ourselves, tsk, 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 too bad. Those people are in a conflict with one another. I'm not involved in that until we get into a conflict. And then, of course, whenever we're in a conflict, we are always the aggrieved party and we always have feet to stand on. And so so what's happening here is Paul is confessing and dealing with his part in the conflict and calling on his brothers and sisters in Corinth to address and to deal with their part in the conflict. So as I thought about this, and I, and I, I want to help us enter into this a little bit this morning, because what, what needs to happen, and the point of this text, is for you and I to examine our hearts and to have God lay bare to us uh, what's going on in us, what's happening in us, and how we deal with people with whom we disagree and how we deal with people whom we uh, have hurt and people who have hurt us. So um, one of the things that I've done over the years and one of the things that happens <clears throat> to me uh, regularly is when I get in trouble, and what, what I mean by that is not you know, that I did something awful. But when I get in trouble internally, and I, I get in trouble internally when I hate people inside me, I know that that's a big red flag. I look at people and I despise them. Even if, you know, do you ever do that? You do. Uh, so, uh, or, uh, yeah. And so one of the things that I, I do in a situation like that is, I think I think that is, uh, certainly, the, sometimes people do things worthy of despising, no doubt. Um, but I also know that if I stay in that position, I'm in trouble. And my heart's in trouble. And honestly, my life's in trouble. And uh, the gospel's work in my life is in trouble. So one of the things that I do whenever I get in trouble is I pull this book off the shelf and I read it. It's a series of letters from a pastor, a guy who had a profound impact on me 25 years ago, Jack Miller. And, and these are these are just letters that he wrote. Now, one of the things you need to know about Jack is Jack was uh, kind of a small guy, really nasal, and he would... Uh, he could smile at you and cut your heart out. Uh, I told my Friday morning group that um, uh, Jack would, would say to you, Steve, do you hear that rustling noise, silent little rustling noise when you pray? Why, yes, Jack, I do. Well, you know what that is? What is it? It's the angels yawning because your prayer is so boring. So he writes a letter, one of, one of many letters. This is a letter he writes to a pastor with whom he has a severe disagreement, and he has a broken relationship. Most of us never experience that. We live completely reconciled lives all the time. So I'm about to do something here that I know is really risky. 
Uh, Marty and I were talking yesterday about books that our teachers read to us as kids that were some of our greatest experiences in school. Um, you and I are not used to being read to. We're very visual people. I hear the clicking already as you pick up your phones to say, I can't listen for more than 30 seconds without an image. So if that's you, close your eyes and just listen as I read to you this letter. This is the letter he's writing to somebody that he has a falling out with. He says some uh, kind things at the beginning. And then he's, uh, this guy that he's writing to not only has had a falling out with Jack, but his church fired him. And so he says, he's, the man's name is Carl. He says, I'm sorry that things have not worked out with your church. I believe that if I had been a more mature person with greater wisdom and courage, perhaps this could have been prevented. I'm not positive on that point, but I can see that greater grace in my life might have made a difference. What strikes me, however, is the common failing we've all shared in. What is the gospel about? It is the reconciliation of sinners to God through the blood of Christ and the reconciliation of men to one another as the fruit of that reconciliation to God. That's worth reading again. What is the gospel all about? It is the reconciliation of sinners to God through the blood of Christ and the reconciliation of men to one another as the fruit of that reconciliation to God. I believe that this is the priority, which is on the heart of the Lord, and one that we sadly neglected in our relationship with one another. It must be greatly offensive to the Lord to see us defending the gospel in a manner that puts us at a distance from one another. How ironic. I fear that none of us have done all that well in living out the gospel as Christian brothers together. What has developed all too often is an adversary relationship among us, much like that in the court system. I'm thinking of the tone, the pitting of position against position, the lack of mutual listening, and sometimes a breach of our covenant, covenant, that is, that we live in a covenant community together, by bitterness and backbiting. At the last day, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself by love. What does not count is biting and devouring each other. And I love how Jack always, uh, he, uh, for a guy who loved grace probably more than anybody I've ever known, uh, always talks about judgment. He, how shall we give an account of ourselves when we are suddenly brought before our all-holy Father and asked to explain our divisions and quarrels? Now, you may think, well, that's never going to happen. Um, but Jesus, right now, and your Father in heaven, sees your divisions and quarrels. Right now. Right? 
So I fear that we've acted hypocritically as brothers together in debating issues that we know little about as part of our own obedience. Who among us has been practicing the gospel? I don't mean that we've always been at each other's throats, but it seems clear to me that the kind of love which is produced by a living faith has been in mighty short supply. If it had not been, I believe that these issues would have been resolved long ago. The whole matter makes me sick at heart. I see little honor for Christ, which sounds a lot like Paul in this text, and what has happened, and no victors, only mutual shamefacedness. Um, and he goes on at the end, and this, this is uh, uh, one of the things that I think is, is so great. Uh, he talks about the willingness to repent and to publicly confess your sins. And then he says that one of the things that I think is really awesome, we're all getting older. <laughs> Life is slipping by quickly, and soon we shall all stand before him who will ask us to give account according to our works done in the body. When that happens, it will be important for us all to say in our final vindication that we led a life of ongoing mutual kindness and forgiveness as a community of Christians. Even though you may feel wronged by others, it is crucial for our standing under the Father's blessing that we work hard to have no personal alienation and to continue to work for that oneness in spirit and doctrine, which is so pleasing to the spirit of unity. At a time of what must be an unbearable burden bearing for you, that is, he just got fired, I would yet encourage you to seek out others and be at peace with them. Shall we not make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace? Together, we must hear the voice of the Spirit saying, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. And so I think the important thing about that is he's not saying in that text that based on how well you forgive other people is going to be uh, determining about whether you get in heaven or not at judgment. But it is a fair question for us to ask ourselves and to have God look into our hearts and lives and say, if you're about the gospel and you're about the atoning work of Jesus Christ, if you if you are about atonement, then and you are therefore about the glory of God, what is happening in these divisions and these difficulties in the church in Corinth? are a poor reflection upon the gospel that was proclaimed to them, a poor reflection upon uh, uh, the work of God in their lives, and even worse yet, uh, it makes them susceptible to even greater darkness. As he ends the text by saying, that we have to be careful as we forgive, that we forgive one another and that we restore one another so as not to become uh, pawns in a game that the devil might be playing. So, uh, Scott, let's, let's put my notes back up here and let's, let's go through. So, so that sets the context for what we're getting at is that what Paul is trying to do is address the division that is in the church the the gossip and the difficult the things that have been said about him and that have wrecked his reputation at the church and now he's explaining to them why he didn't come to them instead what he did was he wrote them a letter now we don't have that letter that he wrote uh it's uh uh, people have characterized it many different ways, but it is a, a letter that he writes to them. And this letter apparently is a letter that caused a lot of pain. So Paul refers to that letter here in uh, uh, chapter 7, beginning at verse 2. 
Now, this is, this is a, this is going to kind of help us understand what the division was and what the real difficulty in the church was. Make room in your hearts for us. We've wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. Um, why would he say that? Because that's what he's accused of. People have accused him of wronging people, of corrupting people, and of taking advantage of people. I don't, I don't know exactly what the basis of the wronging people would be, but my guess is the, the accusation of corruption would be that he preached the gospel of grace too profoundly and that uh, there was a fear that it would cause people to slip into immorality. And the fact, the accusation that he would take an advantage of people must have been that he received some, probably some financial uh, support from the church. And that was a, that there was an accusation there that he was taking advantage of people. He says, I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts. Make room in our hearts for us. You're in our hearts to die together and to live together. I'm acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort and all our affliction. I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, right? And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort which he was comforted by you, because he had taken him the letter, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though not only for a little while. Now that is the most convoluted sentence in the Bible. If you wrote that sentence on an English paper, your your teacher would say, what are you doing? What are you doing? Right? What does he say? For even if I made you grieve with my letter, that is, he rebukes them, they feel sad. I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. Now, why is that? Because he loves them so much and he is so tender towards them, he can't stand the thought that he would hurt them. Even though they've said, you are a false preacher, you're corrupting people, you're in it for the wrong reasons for false gain. Even in that, he loves them so much that even as he rebukes that, he's grieved because he doesn't want to cause them pain. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. So that's what helps them think what I did was a good thing because they're repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So they heard the letter and they've repented. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong. Right? It's the same thing that he mentions here. This one, you must turn and forgive and comfort him, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boast I made to him about you, 
I was not put to shame. Paul's even bragging on them about the work of God in them. But just as everything we said to you is true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. What a crazy thing, right? So what's happened here is there was a man in the church, this is what I think, who is uh, speaking poorly of Paul and actually gets a circle of people around him, right? And and we know that that's, that that's how it works, right? I mean, the, the fact is that one of the quickest, easiest, and best ways to build relationships with other people is to share together in negativity and complaining. Right? And so as they share this, this as, as this man uh, said these things about Paul and he gathered a group of people around him and Paul's reputation is being trashed, his gospel is being uh, trashed, his, his, uh, the work of God, the glory of God is shrinking, things are in trouble here. Paul writes them this letter to address that and to get at it, right? And to get at uh, that these things about him are not true. So next slide. So he he he. But even in the midst of that, what he does here is, as he has written the letter, the people hear it, they repent, and they impose church discipline upon the man who was the leading gossip and offender. But even now, as they've done that appropriately, Paul says, "Listen, you've gone too far. It's time to restore him." Right. He says you should rather turn and forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. So what he wants them to do is it's good that they addressed it. It's good that they called it out. It's good that they rebuked him and even that they disciplined him. But they've gone too far. And so what he wants them to do now is to reaffirm their love for him and to welcome him as he repents back into the uh, the church. So we know that, that, that he smeared Paul, that he said terrible things about him. But Paul's heart is so great, has been moved so much by the gospel, that as he repents and as he struggles with this, he wants to make sure that this one that he pointed out, this one who needed to be dealt with, that, that the discipline against him is not overly harsh and that they restore him back fully uh, into the congregation. Next slide. So the, the thing that we have to see about this, he sees this and he wants them to restore them and to bring this person back into uh, uh, into the fellowship. Because what he recognizes is that if they don't do that, if they allow bitterness to take root in his life and into their life, and if the gospel does not have its impact upon them so that this bitterness can be dealt with and this root of bitterness can be gotten rid of, they actually end up, even though they're right, they were right to discipline, they were right to rebuke, they end up putting themselves in danger of falling further into darkness and making themselves uh, pawns in a game that the devil would love to play by driving the division further and wrecking the witness of the church. Right. So if they don't address this brokenness, it would give Satan an opportunity to further disrupt the church. Now, um, what are we to make of this and, and what are we to think about this? Well, a, a couple of things. Um, next slide, please, Scott. Um, actually, take that down for a minute. 
Um, how does this work? What am I talking about? What's Paul talking about? How, how, does, how does this apply to us? Well, several years ago, uh, I had the opportunity to be a chapel speaker at a, at a Christian school to the elementary school kids. And the context, as any good preacher must know when he comes in to speak to an outside group, was broken relationships. Because, as you all know, with elementary school kids, there's a lot of politics. And often those politics get worked out on the playground. Right? That's where we work it out. So on the playground, they had been playing dodgeball. Now I know dodgeball has fallen into disrepute. We don't play dodgeball anymore because it's not, it's because it's a violent sport. That's why I loved it so much when I was in elementary school. You know what dodgeball is? Two lines, group in the middle, you throw the ball. You throw it really hard. If you hit the, somebody in the middle with the ball, they're out. If they catch the ball, you're out, right? So you know what you do with that, right? So mean kids try to throw it at people's heads. Smart kids throw it at their feet. I was good at that. I would throw it at people's feet so as not just to hit them in the feet, but to knock their feet out from under them. Well, it's just so happened that there had been some, some, um, some dodgeball and some kids had gotten hit in the face. Crying, upset. Temptations, the retaliation, the whole nine yards. So the teachers, being godly teachers, get the kids together. Jack, did you hit Fred in the face with the ball? Yes. Fred, do you forgive Jack for hitting you in the face with the ball? Yes. Are you sorry? Yes. Good. Let's pray for Jesus to help us and to forgive one another. And they did it. And they went on and they played. And for a little bit, it was okay. But that night. As you're laying in bed and you take your hand and you think, my nose is sore. That jerk, he needs to pay. That's called failed forgiveness. Which is the root of bitterness, the foundation of the root of bitterness. So that what happens in that situation is now, rather than entrust myself and the person who hurt me to the atoning work that Jesus Christ achieved for me on the cross, I am going to exact atonement for their sin against me. Right. So what Paul's doing here is saying, listen, the glory of God is at stake, not just in our doctrine, not just in us getting the gospel right, but in how we live with one another, how we reconcile with one another, how we talk to and about one another. And how we are zealous in the midst of that for the glory of God to be demonstrated in the power of the gospel and that we are reconciled one to another. That we legitimately are brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. 
and that we are legitimately brothers and sisters of one another in the Father's house. Right? So let's, let's draw some conclusions here about how this works, right? So we can never water down the claim of Christ upon the affections and behavior of his bride. Paul was absolutely right to say, listen, listen, what's going on there is wrong. You need to repent. You need to confront the, the person that is sinning and we must address it because the glory of God is at stake in the way in which we talk about one another, right? So it wasn't just Paul's reputation at stake, but the gospel, and not only the gospel, but the joy of everyone else involved. That's why he says that what he's working for and that he, what he wants to see happen is mutual joy and encouragement in the church. And so he, it, he was absolutely right, and we are absolutely right when we do that, right? That, that, that the reputation of Christ, the glory of God is at stake in the way in which we live together as, as, uh, um, as, as, as Christians, if we say that we believe the gospel of Christ, then the most profound way that will be demonstrated and the way in which we deal with our disagreements. Secondly, we must always pray and hope for the glory of God, which is what Paul's very clearly talking about here, the reputation of Christ and true joy to be truly at stake when we rebuke. In other words, listen, when, when you're... When we rebuke simply because we're, we're upset or we rebuke simply because we're angry or we re- rebuke out of some sense of only personal offense without seeing the fact that I need to cause this pain to the other person so that they can repent, so that God can be glorified, so that in the aftermath our joy becomes greater and the glory of God then becomes even greater still That has to be the thing that God must do in our hearts to change us and renew us so that that's what happens. That's what Paul's getting at here. Listen, what he wants to happen is he wants the rebuke, the repentance to take place, and he wants there to be a restoration of joy, and he wants the reputation of Christ to be elevated as the gospel does its work in renewing and restoring these relationships. So joy, repentance, and restoration are those ways in which we most hope for the glory of God to be revealed in us. That's exactly what he's getting at here. So much so that even the man who said these horrible things about him, who said that he was a user, a corrupter, who said that he was in in many ways uh, a false apostle, that he wants to see him restored and renewed and placed into the congregation. Now, now let me say something about that. We hear that and we think, well, that that's that's really remarkable. If if that man were in our church today, you know what we would say about him? We would say, well, he has a pattern of this behavior, and once you say. Someone in our congregation, for many of us, they have a pattern of this behavior. You know what we're saying? They are irredeemable. Right? And listen, listen. I hate it when people have, when I have a pattern of behavior. It's okay. We're quick to extend grace to the person who out of weakness may fail. 
And it's always mysterious to me. I've been thinking a lot about this about my family. It is it's so mysterious to me about how we sin against each other in our family all the time. We're a normal family. We do it all the time. We're doing it all the time. How within that, there are some people that we're quick to give. I'm quick to give the benefit of the doubt to, but not others. And others are quick to give the benefit of the doubt to some, but not to others, right? And so that's exactly what's what's going on here with with this is that as we struggle to bring about reconciliation, what we're doing, what happens to us is we think, oh, this person, they're irredeemable because they do this all the time. Now, maybe you need to limit uh, their ability to sin against you. I'm certain that this man who said these things about Paul said things like this all the time. And yet, as he repents, and yet, as he hears what the church has to say to him, the one he sinned against is urging the church to make a place for him back in the church, lest it become too heavy and the devil become too big a part of the church. Now, why would he go to Satan in that? Real quickly, let me just say, what is the nickname for the devil, the accuser of the brothers? Is that who you want to identify yourself with, that you're the accuser of the brothers? Rather, what about the restorer, the one who takes the risk to restore the person with the pattern of behavior? Okay. And then lastly, who's my enemy? Uh, you might expect me to say that the only enemy in this text is Satan. He's certainly an enemy. Uh, but I would also submit to you that this man who speaks poorly of Paul was his enemy. And the church and Paul were certainly at enmity with one another and were enemies with one another. Identifying somebody as an enemy uh, certainly is not uh, the, the, the last and the worst thing that we can do. Because the gospel says to us that by the death of Jesus Christ, he makes his enemies friends. We were his enemies and he made us his friends. Your enemies, through the power of the gospel, through the work that he does, the people you vehemently disagree with, have been made your friends. Um, we, As I said, last week we had uh, uh, my dad's 87th birthday party, and we sat as a family together and enjoyed a party together. Uh, great cake, great food, it was fun. I sat next to my brother. He's 61. I'm 57. Do you know how many times we told each other to shut up? <laughs> Do you know how many times we said, you should be quiet now? That's enough. Do you know how many times we said, all right, you know, you know, do you want me to take you out here and give you a spanking? <laughs> He's 61, I'm 57. We didn't do that. We would have been on the news. That would have been bad. Uh, um, But what I realize in that is, you know what? He's my brother. And nobody else in the world has the same relationship with me that he does. I don't have anybody else in the world like him. I'm not saying it's the best relationship. But it is a unique relationship, and it's one that God has placed me in sovereignly. 
So the same thing is true for us as we live and work in the church. We are brothers and sisters. And there might be times and opportunities for us to rebuke one another. But at the end of the day, even if we feel like that guy sitting over there is my enemy, he's your brother. And after all, what did Jesus say we must do with our enemies? We must love them. Um, It's really hot in here, isn't it? I'm shocked that most of you have paid attention. So uh, let's, let's call it quits and sing. Let me pray. Lord, thanks today for your goodness and your love and your mercy. Thanks for your presence in our lives. Uh, thanks for the reconciling gospel and the atoning work that Jesus has given to us. Thanks that the point of the gospel is that it reconciles enemies to God and enemies to one another, making us friends. Forgive us, sanctify us, strengthen us, and enable us for your glory, for the cause of the gospel, uh, to reflect well upon the atoning work uh, that has broken down barriers and made us brothers and sisters with one another. Help us, we pray, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. As the guys come up to take up the offering, let me remind you to drop your tear off in the plate. Please don't feel pressure to give. Only give today if it's a part of your worship in response to God's goodness and grace.